This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good morning. Good to be together. Uh, My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. So if I haven't met you, uh, how do you do? Good Good to meet you. Glad you could be with us today. We are in a series walking through the book of Nehemiah, and I'm going to give a little background to it so you'll be able to catch up to where we are today. But today we're going to cover Nehemiah chapter 5. So turn there if you would. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one under the seat in front of you, and uh, you can turn to page 227. And that'll put you right where we uh, are on Nehemiah. So with the holidays and stuff, we kind of skipped around a little bit. But I think we're pretty much in Nehemiah until we're done. I think there's one Sunday we may do something different. Basically, we're in Nehemiah uh, until we finish it, which will be at the end of March, beginning of April, somewhere in there. So uh, let me tell you what's happened so far. Nehemiah uh, is a Jew, and he's living uh, in the capital of Persia, uh, and he's the cupbearer to King, King uh, Artaxerxes, which means he samples all the wine so it's poisoned, he dies, takes a bullet for the king. So that's what he's kind of secret service. So that's what he's doing. And uh, he, uh, he gets a message that his hometown, the people where the people of God uh, dwell in the city of Jerusalem, that even though, even though Israel had, been in, had gone in exile 140 years ago, the walls still haven't been rebuilt. So the temple's been rebuilt, but the walls have not been rebuilt. And so the city's vulnerable. People could uh, attack them. They have no protection. So people aren't, haven't moved back into the city. So it kind of lies in ruins. So he prays and then asks the king of Persia, could he go and do something about it? Could, could uh, Nehemiah? So the, the king miraculously supports this plan uh, financially, sends protection with him, and he goes back to Jerusalem. So he presents the compelling vision to the people, says, hey, we're going we're gonna, to uh, build the walls. And uh, they all say, great, we are on board with this. And they all jump in. In chapter four, uh, what happens is, well, chapter three, they start building and it's wonderful. Side by side, everybody's working together. It's one of the most beautiful pictures, uh, probably in the Bible, of God's people working together for God's mission, God's purposes, everybody doing their role. So that happens. Uh, In chapter 4, we had two excellent messages from Caleb and Chauncey walked us through chapter 4, and what we learned there was that there comes outside opposition. So the governors of the areas that surround them aren't happy that they're rebuilding the walls, and so they taunt them, and then they ultimately threaten violence and attack. So what happens is the people pray, realizing that, uh, hey, when when attack comes, when opposition comes, remember that God is greater than the opposition. So they pray and they prepare. So they sent, set some people up to guard, some people up to protect them. Uh, and they're actually working on the wall with one hand and got a sword in the other for self-defense in case they're uh, attacked. But they continue to work. Chapter 5, where we are today, this is about opposition from the inside. So they faced opposition from the outside. Now they're going to deal with grievances, legitimate grievances, uh, one brother to another, one sister to another among the people of Israel. So this is kind of a long chapter. So what I'm going to do is read a section, talk about it, read a section, talk about it, read a section, talk about it, pull it all together, put a bow on it with a theme, what is the whole chapter about, and then we'll make some application. Uh, So that's what we're going to do. So this is Nehemiah 5. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 6. 
Let's listen to God's holy word. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of the daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we look at this text today that you would address our hearts. We pray that you would help us to understand the nature of the injustices in this passage. We pray that you would help us understand the justice that you prescribe through Nehemiah. And we pray that we would understand the generosity towards all that we find in this text. Most of all, we pray that you would show us in a fresh way the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Redeemer, who redeems all who believe from oppression. So we come and pray that you would open our eyes to Christ, that his cross and resurrection uh, might be magnified even in this Old Testament narrative today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this first section I'm calling Injustice Described. Uh, because it describes injustice. And so that's why I'm calling it injustice described. Now, uh, we plan out the messages. Uh, Generally, I plan them out like a year at a time. Uh, And then specifically as they get closer. So when we structured out the schedule and laid out the passages, it just so happened that we hit this passage this day, which I think is a happy uh, providence, um, because it is a passage about injustice, and uh, Nehemiah is the champion for justice in this passage. So it's appropriate for this weekend when our country causes, uh, pauses to consider the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, who stood for equal rights for all people, regardless of race. He stood for the marginalized in society, uh, those on the outside looking in. And that's what Nehemiah does here. He doesn't stand for, it's not a racial issue in this passage, but it is a marginalization issue uh, from an economic point of view. And um, representing God, Nehemiah stands for those who are being financially oppressed by those in power. So here's what happens. Let's look at the nature of the injustice. Verse one, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives. A great outcry. Some, uh, some, some call this a protest. There becomes this great protest. Things are going great on the wall and all of a sudden there have been festering uh, challenges in the community that rise to the surface and erupt in a great outcry. Uh, And it mentions that wives are out crying. Now, why is this? It says, uh, you know, the people and their wives. Well, the people are those working on the wall, likely. And so it's not only those who are working on the wall who outcry, but their wives uh, bring this outcry representing their children. Look at verse two. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So at some level, the the wives are generating 
are uh, propelling uh, this protest. And what is the nature of the protest? Well, the nature of the protest is they're complaining because of poverty. They don't have food to eat and it's affecting their families. So it's not hard to reconstruct what's going on here. Uh, Nehemiah comes and draws uh, able-bodied men. Some women worked on the wall as well. When we looked at who all worked on the wall, some men had their daughters working with them. But mostly it was men working, building the wall. And uh, this was a culture where people lived very much hand-to-mouth. And people were dependent on daily wages or weekly wages to provide for their family. So as the men are off working freely, uh, serving, volunteering their labor to build the wall, which was a great thing to do. But as they're away doing that, guess what? If they're not working at home or they're not working in the fields and they're working on the walls, they're not earning money and the family doesn't eat. And so there is this rise of, hey, we're, we're, we're really suffering here. The second complaint is found in verse 3. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. So there's a famine going on on top of this. There's probably been one bad harvest, two bad harvests, we don't know. But there's been a, you know, there's been a lack of harvest. And so what people have had to do is they've had to take out a loan uh, and put up their fields their houses, their vineyards as collateral uh, for the loans they have taken. And they've taken these loans uh, for, for just to be able to eat. Perhaps it's to eat, it says, so that we can get grain. Some commentators say that it may be so that they can get seed so that they can plant and hopefully harvest the next time. But whatever it is, they are putting all that they have up at risk. I mean, this is perilous. If they have another bad harvest, they stand to lose all that they own, their vineyard, their way of making money, their way of feeding their family, their houses, their vineyards. They could lose everything. And the outcry comes, if you notice verse one, against their Jewish brothers. The heart of the outcry here is that people are having to mortgage all that they have to survive. And what we're going to find out in the next section is their brothers are charging them interest. So they're taking advantage of the poor. They are oppressing the poor with, by exacting interest upon them when they are in great need, just trying to survive. They also have hefty, hefty taxes from the government, verse 4. There were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, isn't King Artaxerxes kind of an open-minded, uh, open-handed kind of a king. You hear about old kings and they, man, they're really bad, but they, he funds, he not only sends Nehemiah, he funds the project. Well, likely Artaxerxes was liberal with regard to religious liberty. So he was happy to have, uh, have people worship however they wanted to have worship and was supportive of the Jews returning and building their temple, even supportive of them building their walls. So he was liberal with regard to uh, religious liberty, but he was uh, grabbing with regard to taxation. He had high taxes on their fields and on their vineyards. So people can't even pay their taxes. So they're having to mortgage all that they own just to pay the government their taxes. And it is their neighbor, their Jewish neighbor, their fellow Israelite that is lending them tax money and charging them interest to make a profit off those whose back is up against the wall. But the third complaint is the worst of all. Verse four, um, 
Verse five, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. The, the complaint is, look, we're all the same people here. Our children are as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. Because, why? It's not in our power to help it. Other men have our fields. These are people who have, cannot pay their loans and have lost their fields. They've mortgaged their fields to their uh, fellow Israelite. They've lost their fields. And so to pay their debt, they're having to take, they're prepared to take their sons and daughters and give them as slaves, debt slaves, to pay back the debts they owe to their fellow Israelite. Um, and some of their daughters are already enslaved, paying off their parents' debt. I mean, this is a grievous injustice. The wealthy and the strong are preying on the weak and even enslaving their fellow Israelites in order to receive payment for their debts. They're not looking how can they help a brother in need. They're looking how can they take advantage of a brother, make an extra buck off the interest of someone who is in desperate need. So no wonder there is a great outcry. God's people are squeezed in this context by poverty. They're squeezed by high taxes. They're squeezed by significant debt load to their neighbor. And now they're squeezed by the unthinkable, having to pay back debt on, law, on, on uh, fields they've already lost by sending their children to serve as child laborers at working the field to pay back the debts they owe. So it's no surprise when Nehemiah hears all of these protests, these complaints, these grievances. It's no surprise when he says in verse 6, I was very angry, is what he says when he hears this. So that's the description of the injustice. Now let's look at the justice that he prescribes. Look at verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain, but let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We'll do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. 
So Nehemiah is angry when he hears about this. And it's a tremendous leadership lesson here, what he does, because he doesn't just take his anger and in some kind of irrational, thoughtless manner go and do something impulsive. He doesn't just tweet out his rage without thought. Uh, He doesn't just go start yelling at people and harming them in some way. He rather, his language is, I took counsel with myself. It means I thought, I paused, I considered. We know from Nehemiah, he's a man of prayer. The first four chapters have multiple references to prayer. When he finds out about the news of Jerusalem, he prays to God, God, help me. Help me to do something about this. So we can assume based on his character in the first four chapters that counsel within himself involves prayer as well. So he waits, he thinks, he reasons, and he prays. That's good leadership. And then what does he do? He takes the leaders who are in charge, those who are responsible for the people. That is the nobles, verse 7, and the officials, and he says to them, you are exacting interest from your brothers. So here are the poor, here are the suffering, and you're acting in a cold way. You're lacking compassion. You're greedy towards them. God requires that the people of Israel help the poor, not profit from the poor. And uh, that's what his law required. God's law required that they could not lend money to the poor with interest, but they were called to help the poor. This was the law in Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25 comes way before Nehemiah. Nehemiah, historically in the narrative, is at the very end of the Old Testament. It's, It's at the very end. And so this is what Leviticus 25 says. These are the words of God to his people. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So God requires his people care for one another in their time of need. And that meant either giving to them, uh, welcoming them in your home, or at least if there is a lending, there's a lending without interest. Why? Well, he says because of the fear of the Lord in that passage, but he ultimately says, because you were enslaved in Egypt and I freed you. It is God freeing his people who were slaves in Egypt that is the motivator, that is the model for how they're to treat one another. You see, they could do nothing to free themselves from oppression. They were under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. They were suffering. They lacked freedom. They were were entrenched in a world that that, that that felt meaningless with no purpose, just day in and day out with no end in sight to their slavery. And God comes and rescues them. He frees them from oppression. And he says, based on what I've done for you, you are to in turn relate to one another in the same way. God frees the oppressed. He doesn't add to their oppression. And that's what he called them to do to one another. So Nehemiah, uh, he calls a great assembly. He addresses the nobles and he calls this great assembly in verse 8. And he says, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers 
who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may also be sold, that they may be sold to us. So evidently, what had happened prior to Nehemiah showing up is people were in debt, they had needs, so they sold one another or they voluntarily went into debt slavery to the nations. So they would go to, to a foreigner, they would pay some money, uh, get the person out of debt, and then they were obligated to serve that debt off as a debt slave to them. And Nehemiah hears about this and he says, we did what we could to buy them back. Nehemiah shows up and says, wait a minute, we got people that are having to sell themselves to the nations, we're buying them back. So he buys them back and he says, I cannot believe this. I mean, are you serious? We went and bought them back from the nations. They come back and you start selling to one another? You become slaves to your brother, slaves to your sister, even your children? Even your children. And here's the problem with that. Look at verse 9. So I said the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of the Lord? Here's what he's saying. Does anybody fear God around here? What is the fear of the Lord? Well, the fear of the Lord is certainly an awareness, a living awareness of his holiness, of his glory and power and majesty, of his love and of his grace. Now, ultimately, the fear of the Lord is, uh, it is a consideration of who he is. It means to live in awe of him, but it's not just a mental contemplation. The fear of the Lord isn't just, I'm intellectually aware that God is holy. It is something that is to touch our hearts. The fear of the Lord is to touch our hearts and then to drive our behavior, to direct our actions. It should lead to obedience. See, when we fear the Lord, we are asking, what does God think about this? Fear of the Lord, he calls it walking in the fear of the Lord. Walking in the Bible is a, is a metaphor uh, for lifestyle. So he's saying you are living your life, living your lifestyle, aware, what does God think about this? And that's what he's saying. Did anybody ask, what does God think about this? Leviticus 25, passages in Deuteronomy as well. Did anybody ask, what is God's view of what we're doing here to one another? They didn't. And that is the problem. No one is asking what God thinks. And what God thinks is what is primary and what is most important. Paige Brown, who teaches, uh, who teaches she's a Bible teacher, and uh, she gave an illustration from Nehemiah. She was talking or, or teaching on Nehemiah, but she gave an illustration uh, where she gave an example of this idea that we're talking about that's at the root of fear of the Lord. She, she said she was uh, at her daughter, I think her daughter was six years old or so, at her daughter's dance recital. And so the daughter completes the recital and just comes running to her mom, excited about her first dance recital. Uh, she says that she embraced her daughter and hugged her and then said this to her daughter, Everyone thought you did such a great job. And her daughter looked at her and said, but mommy, what did you think? And she was saying the point of her daughter was she didn't care what everyone else thought about the performance. She wanted to know what did you think? 
And that is the root of the fear of the Lord. There are a lot of opinions out there. There are a lot of practices, a lot of doctrines, a lot of traditions, a lot of worldviews, a lot of approaches to life. There are countless ideas about every subject out there. But living in the fear of the Lord means that primarily and first we are concerned about what does God think? And that's his critique of them. No one is asking, what does God think about this? When we do that, we will provide a good example to those looking on. He says, hey, those who taunt us are going to see you. And in essence, he's saying that they're going to see you're no different than they are. How are you representing God if you don't ask what he thinks and, and obey his word and live in a way that is gracious, generous, and caring for those in need? How, is, how are the nations going to have a glimpse of the mercy of God if you don't treat one another mercifully? That's his point. Well, Nehemiah has been lending as well. He says that in verse 10. I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So is Nehemiah doing the same thing? Is that a mea culpa? Is this his confession to the people? It could be. Um, it could be. He doesn't actually, he does say, let, let us certainly corporately as a people not exact interest, which isn't necessarily identifying. He's not saying I am doing that. If he is doing it, it's a bit surprising that in verse six, he is very angry at the nobles when he hears what they're doing. Be a bit hypocritical if he's doing the same thing and he is calling them on the carpet. We're going to see in the next section that Nehemiah's leadership is governed by sacrificial generosity. We'll see that in just a minute. I think that informs how we understand this. I think he is saying, look, I'm lending as well, but let's stop. There must be no more charging of interest. And he gives this prescribed repentance. What does repentance look like? Well, verse 11, return them. Give them back their fields, their vineyards, their orchards, everything, their houses, the percentage that is the interest that you've taken. So you've taken interest in the form of money, in the form of grain, in the form of wine and oil that you've been exacting from them. And what's really amazing, they say, we'll do this. They repent. We will restore everything and we won't require anything else from them. It's a powerful moment of repentance among the people of God. They agree. And then Nehemiah gives this sobering warning. I mean, Nehemiah is, uh, he is a fearless guy as we'll see throughout this Throughout this book, he, he, is, he lives by the fear of the Lord and he lives in a way that it inspires a healthy fear of the Lord in others. Because what he does in verse 13 is this prophetic sign. A lot of times in the Old Testament, prophets would do things. They would do signs. Sometimes they were, uh, you know, way out there. They would do various signs that would communicate judgment. And so he takes, the, he takes his garment, the fold of his garment, and he shakes it out. And he said, everybody here is making a promise today that you are not going to oppress the poor. You're not going to take advantage of the weak. You're not going to make money off the back of the hurting. So what I'm saying is you better honor that promise because if you don't, God, just like I'm shaking my garment, God is going to shake you away from himself. He's going to, it says, his word is uh, he is going to empty you. He's going to empty himself of you. He's going to, in essence, shake you away from his protective, tender care in his garment. 
Why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that because these are the exact same sins that brought about the exile 140 years earlier. The prophets Isaiah and Amos had come to the people and have said, repent, stop taking advantage of one another. Stop enslaving and abusing one another financially. Stop taking advantage of those in need. Love your, your fellow brother and sister that are in need by providing care for them and help. Serve the poor, don't get on the back of the poor and press them down. And they refused to listen and they were in exile. And in essence, he's saying, this is, the Lord's gonna deal with you in a similar way if you don't really honor this. And they said, amen. They, they, they agreed with this sign and said, we will be faithful. <clears throat> so the injustice is described. The justice is prescribed, which is repentance and re- restoration of everything that they have taken. <clears throat> and that, that is done. Interest returned. And then the last section is just on generosity. This is a, really a powerful section. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. So Nehemiah does something interesting here. He, he, he jumps to the end of his tenure. So he's writing this. Now he writes back in and says, okay, I'm telling you the story. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Oh, by the way, I was there 12 years is what he says. We also learned that he was the governor. We didn't find that out till right now. Artaxerxes didn't just send him, but he made him governor over Judah. So in the whole time that I served as the governor, I never took the governor's food allowance. And you think, well, like, what is that? That's not a big deal. Like taking a per diem from the, from, from, uh, you know, a per diem of, of getting three meals a day from, uh, from, you know, the Persian king. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about feeding all those who were with him, feeding all those who served with him, which he says is 150 people. And so the previous governors had taxed the people of Judah so that they could feed well the 150 people or however many they had that were there. So it's not just like a meal allowance. He is feeding a a small army of people that are working with him. He says, I never charged the people of Israel, which he legitimately could have done under the law. I never charged them for, uh, for the food that I, I just, I paid for this on my own. Why? Verse 15, because of the fear of God. I thought, what does God think about this? I have means, I have resources, I have supplies. I can touch those or I can tax the poor and exact the money from them and then eat. 
But because of the fear of God, I did not do that. He also could have had land, but he says he did not acquire land. I mean, this is a great leadership model. Leadership is not taking from those we lead. It is sacrificing for those we lead. That's what he's saying. His leadership model is to remove burdens from people, not add burdens from people. His leadership model is to do what is ever in his power to alleviate the oppression that people feel, to free them, to empower people. That is leadership. He is seeking to empower them, not to gain power for himself. This is a great leadership model in any kind of leadership, not just among the people of God, but in your family. If you have kids, you're a leader. Your husband or wife with children, a parent, you are a leader, and leadership is sacrificing for someone else to remove their burden, not to add to their burden. Or if you lead in the workplace where you work, maybe you have a leadership role. This is a great model. It is serving, it is looking at the people that you lead and thinking, how can I serve them? Not how can I get something from them, but how can I give to them to empower them in their work? Are there burdens that they have that I can alleviate? Are there are there conditions, are there circumstances in the workplace, are there, way that we, are there ways that we do things that I could change that would help them to flourish rather than to be limited? That's leadership. What, what could I sacrifice myself for others? And so he says, I will out of my own pocket feed 150 people a day. And he gives this, I mean, I can't imagine what this is all like. I, I don't know. But it, like they eat an ox a day. They eat six sheep a day. They, they eat birds. Uh, I don't know how many birds or, but anyway, but he's funding all that. So he's good for 12 years. He is covering the daily meal of ox, sheep, birds, whatever, what, what all they're eating, and wine is as well. And he doesn't charge, verse 18, yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance, that is the people didn't pay it, of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Leadership is looking out and saying, where is there, where is there a heavy burden on this people? And how can I, according to God's word, by God's grace, think of God? What does God want me to do here? And how can I be a blessing? That's how he leads. Now, why is this section in here? I'm going to speculate a little bit because it doesn't say. It doesn't say verse 14. This is why I'm writing this section. It doesn't tell us. But here's, there may be many reasons. But here's one reason that I think he gives us this 12 years of history of how he lived. We get injustice, we get justice, and then we get this 12 years of generosity. Here's one reason. Because without this section, I know my heart, I know the human heart, without this section on generosity, I think we could all look at this text and go, okay, interesting history lesson, not relatable. uh, To me, I mean, there's no poor people that I'm saying, I'll lend you some food money, but I want your house as collateral. And if you can't pay me back for the food, then I'm taking your house. I've never done that to anybody. I'm innocent. I've never taken debt service slaves into my house uh, to work because someone owed me money and couldn't pay me back. So I said, send your kids over here. They're serving me until the debt's paid. I've never done that. 
don't be impressed. But I've never done anything. So I can look at this and go, I haven't done these things. I haven't oppressed the poor. I haven't stood on the backs of the weak in the, in the ways that they specifically did. I, I, haven't, I haven't had that kind of an attitude. But Nehemiah, in this next section, kicks it up a completely different level. He says it's not just enough to avoid standing on the backs of the poor and oppressing them in very tangible ways by exacting interest. It, it's, not, uh, it's not enough just to avoid that, but rather service in the kingdom of God means generosity. Service in the kingdom of God is not just avoiding harming those in need, it's lifting up those in need. It's removing burdens of those in need. It's freeing those who are oppressed. It's actively helping at a sacrifice to myself. How can I make a personal sacrifice with what I have for the good of everybody? What burden is out there that I can say, I'll take that, I'll take that burden on myself. See, this section of scripture models something so that I could read the first verses, and, and, and I think the first verses do apply to us ultimately, but I'm not going to go there right now. I think we could take the first verses and easily give ourselves a, a pat on the back and say, I'm not doing that. But this next section, verses 14 through 19, about, yeah, I'll feed 150 people a day out of my own pocket at loss when I could legitimately by law charge it from the people. I won't do that. This one, I think, has our hearts in its crosshairs. This passage says, I'm to live a sacrificial life for the good of others. I am to walk in the fear of God. I'm to think, what does God think about this? And I'm to act in a way that bears burdens and serves others. He says, I bore the cost because the service was too heavy for them. And it's in this phrase, I bore the cost because the service was too heavy on this people. It's here that we ultimately see Nehemiah in some very real way points to Christ. I mean, Nehemiah is serving, the, the word king is not used here, but he is serving kind of in a kingly role as a governor ruling over the people. And he points to the ultimate king by his actions. He points to King Jesus because as Nehemiah absorbed the cost of food, so that he would bear the financial burden of his people. So Jesus absorbs the cost of judgment. Jesus absorbs the cost of judgment to bear the sins of his people. Jesus is the ultimate one who says, I will bear their load for the load is too heavy for them. They say uh, up in verse uh, five, they say it's not in our power to help it for other men have our fields. They're saying we are desperate We've lost our fields, and now we're having to, to send our kids into slave labor. But we can't do anything about it. We have nothing. We are bankrupt. We, have, we, cannot, we cannot contribute. And that is exactly the way we are in our sin. Before God, holy God of the universe, we are morally bankrupt. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We can't be obedient enough. We can't be good enough. You can't help the poor enough even to make yourself right with God. You can't be compassionate enough. You can't stand for social justice and act appropriately uh, with regard to social justice, acting mercifully. You can't do that enough to make yourself right with God. And, and so the reality is that we need someone to bear our load, not our financial debt, but the debt of sin, the eternal debt that we have before God. Listen, the example of Nehemiah is moving because he sacrifices himself from himself for the good of his people. And it's moving because it points to the grand 
arc, the grand story of the Bible, which is about God himself bearing the burdens of people that could never, they could never bear on their own. That's, that's the whole point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is not Jesus comes and says, here is the way to live a righteous life. Go live a righteous life and make yourself right with God. The story of the Bible is God coming in Jesus and saying, you are under an eternal mound of sin. You could never make yourself right with God, but I'll bear that sin on the cross for you. And if you trust in me and what I've done, you will, if you repent from your sin and turn from to me, believe in my death and resurrection for you, you will receive forgiveness of sins. You will receive eternal life. And not only that, but God uh, joins us to himself. We're joined to Christ. If you've never made that commitment of your life to Christ, if you've never seen the judgment that is due you and is coming because of your sin, if you've never seen that or never responded to Christ, I urge you to come to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Thank you for taking my debt, paying my price, bearing the load. As Jesus dies on the cross, uh, God, uh, God counts our sins to him and he dies the death that we should have died. But when we become a believer, not only are our debts forgiven, not only are we given new life, but we're joined to Christ. Christ is joined to us. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. So God himself lives in us and he begins to make us a different person. He begins to change our desires. He begins to make us more like Jesus when we see someone in need. Rather than seeing an opportunity to gain personally, we see an opportunity to sacrifice personally for the good of another. That's the attitude of Christ that he begins to develop in us. And that's what he's doing in the people here. He's calling them, Nehemiah is calling the people to turn their hearts towards God, turn their hearts towards God's purposes. Nehemiah is being led by God to build something more than a wall. He's building the people of God to reflect God. That's exactly what we're doing. We're not building a wall here, but we, by God's grace, are being built together to be his people, to demonstrate to the world mercy and grace and kindness to those in need, generosity to those in need. There's two key points in this passage where Nehemiah talks about the fear of the Lord. Verse 9, he tells the people, why are you oppressing the poor? Don't you fear the Lord? So that's corrective. And in verse 15, he says, the reason I didn't charge taxes to the people from, from my 150 pals and our food uh, is because I fear the Lord. So in both cases, this is really central in the text. He is, he is saying, look, you aren't, wearing, you aren't living aware of God. You aren't asking, what does God think? And you ended up doing this. I am asking what God thinks, and I ended up doing this. Failure to ask what God thinks led to uh, a lack of mercy. Asking what God thinks led to extravagant generosity for the people of God. He makes that financial sacrifices for God's people and God's purposes because of the fear of the Lord. He sacrifices for God's people motivated again by what God thinks. That's the point of the chapter. He's building, God is building his people to love one another, to reflect his character to a watching world. That's their mission. And Nehemiah says, I will sacrifice for that purpose. I will sacrifice. I'd summarize the chapter this way. I think the point of the chapter is walking in the fear of the Lord. That's Nehemiah's language. Walking in the fear of the Lord means living mercifully toward the needy and generously towards all. 
walking in the fear of the Lord, the lifestyle of asking what does God think will lead us to live mercifully towards those in need and to live generously for the sake of all of God's people. So let's close with this. How can I do that? How can I walk in the fear of God? Well, I'm gonna make this as simple as I can. Think of one person in your life, in your circle of relationships, who is in need. Don't think about the masses because it's overwhelming. The masses of need, it's paralyzing and we don't do anything. But think about one person in your circle. It could be someone in your family, extended family, someone in your community group, a fellow church member, could be a coworker. I'm gonna go beyond just the church here. It could be a coworker, could be someone who lives on your block in your apartment complex, a neighbor who is needy. They're needy because they're suffering physically or maybe they're suffering mentally or emotionally. Maybe they're suffering financially. That's what this passage is about. Maybe they're suffering financially. What could you do to alleviate a burden from one person? What could you do to lift someone who's under a burden, someone who is under difficulty, who is experiencing a challenge? Think of just one person. Think about this passage where the opposite of taking advantage of the people would be to help them in their need. Think about that. Is there someone that you could pay one bill for them, someone who is behind that's struggling, that you could cover a bill. People do that in our church. I mean, I hear stories. I don't, I'm sure it happens more than I know because plenty happens in secret. But occasionally I'll hear a story about someone who picks up a bill for someone else. I'll just cover that. I'll cover that medical bill or that electrical bill or here's some groceries we're going to bring by. I'll, come, I'll, I'll cover that for you. Maybe it's extending hospitality. Maybe it's helping someone who is in a difficult situation find a job. Maybe you have the ability to help, help them find a job. Maybe you could help them if they don't know how or they're struggling. Maybe you could help them uh, do their taxes or something like that. Maybe you could take them to a doctor's appointment. I don't know what practical service might look like. But what could you do for one person? I mean, we can go global here and say, oh, the whole people of God, the whole world. I mean... Or we could say, who's one person God's put in my life that I could walk out of here and do something? Secondly, I want to think about the church because Nehemiah 14 through verses 14 through 19, uh, here he's talking a little bit more global. Global. It wasn't you, uh, you know, you, you, made, a loan, you, you, you uh, made a loan to this one person and then exacted interest. That's a personal transaction. He's going broad. He's saying, I want to bear the burden so for the whole people. So I'm going to cover their expenses. So think about that. What are the purposes that Nehemiah is about? Well, their purposes are building a wall. And he contributes for the building of that wall by not charging people uh, the food allowance that he could do. His sacrifice contributes to the overall purpose of what God's doing among his people. So how can you make a financial sacrifice to serve the community? That's what he's doing, a sacrifice to serve God's people in their purposes, he does his part. He has resources and he uses them. Well, here, here's one way. You could faithfully give to your church. Maybe that's this church or maybe you go to, maybe you're a part of another church, then that's not this church, that's somewhere else. But you could faithfully contribute to the whole to bear the burden, to bear the burden uh, of the whole so that, that, uh, that it's not left to a few people to keep the lights on 
or to fund the mission, but you're contributing to the whole because of what God has given you. Giving to the whole. I challenge you to think about that in, a new, in the new year, right? New year, new you. Uh, and uh, so that's what we all say, new year, new you. And uh, so some people at this time of the year are looking at their finances, looking at their budget, looking at what that means. And so I would challenge you to think about fear. What does, I would just ask this question, what does the Lord think? How can I fear the Lord with stewarding my resources? And how can I take a sacrifice? How can I make a sacrifice to carry the burden for other people as a whole? So this is kind of the macro and the micro together. What can I do? Maybe it's also, maybe there's some very tangible things you can do for an individual as well within the church. You know, we heard some announcements today. Maybe you could cover, uh, maybe someone's out of work and you could cover her costs for the women's retreat. Maybe you could send a lady on the retreat who doesn't have the means to do that. Or maybe you could send a kid, sponsor a kid for Rise Up Weekend. We got families that have multiple kids. Maybe there's some families that are tight and, uh, and you could cover their kids. I don't know what it is, but what could you do that would contribute to the whole? Listen, a primary evidence of a heart touched by grace is a heart that freely and generously gives of its resources. There is no clearer sign that a heart that has been touched by mercy, that says, look at what you have done for me. That was his point. I freed you from Egypt. How, how could you treat anyone else this way? You should be living a life of freedom and, and extending freedom. And the same is true of Jesus. Jesus died for us, gave us new life graciously. And so we are privileged to graciously give to those around us, to take whatever resources he's given us and steward them wisely and carefully and sacrificially to bear burdens for other people. Walking in the fear of the Lord, lifestyle of thinking, what does God think? Walking in the fear of the Lord means at least, it means more, but it means at least living mercifully towards the needy and living generously towards all. May God increasingly make us this kind of people so that those who are looking on, either in opposition or peering in to see what it's really like, what are those people really like, so that those looking on see the mercy and the grace of God, see Him represented, see the grace of Christ represented in the way we treat the least of these, the way we treat those who are struggling and those who are suffering, and the way we contribute to the whole purpose of God and his people. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.